Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, went with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Critus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmoni. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lassie. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladin. But when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when we, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, 
We must run aground on a certain island. Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the sailors cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach under which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. I'm here in Acts 27. I'm going to ask if you would to join me. We'll pray, ask the Lord His blessing upon this word. There's a lot here in Acts 27. And Lord willing, we're going to get through Acts 27 because it's all a, a big chunk of text talking about the same event in the life of Paul. And... Uh, Excited about the things this particular chapter teaches us, in particular about the Lord. So to that end, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in, a, in prayer, and, and we'll jump in here and uh, go on this journey here with Paul as he makes his way toward Rome. Father, we praise you for another opportunity that we have to open your word today. And we thank you for giving us these scriptures, which the Bible says are God-breathed. Father, I thank you that 
what we have before us is your truth. It's your truth from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. Father, I pray that each time we open this word that you've given, we would remember that. This is your truth given to us. And Father, we're grateful that you sent your son Jesus down here to earth to live, to die, to be raised to life once again, to serve as our Redeemer and our Savior. And we celebrate the journey of Jesus from heaven to earth, the incarnation where God became man in the flesh. Father, this morning, we pray that you would teach us about this journey that we are taking. Some of us are just starting the journey. Others of us are maybe at a midway point in the journey. And still others are in need of your grace and sustaining power to get them through the finish line. Help us see the journey through your eyes. And teach us and refine us through the journey that we might become more like your son Jesus. Lord, I I recognize this morning that you've done great things. And I ask this morning that you would do great things this day through the foolishness of the message preached. May this word be our delight day and night along the journey. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Before you play a game, whatever game it might be, it's important that you know the objective. For instance, there's a game that is a, it's, it's a fairly unique game. Now, many of you here have heard of the game, but it's unique in how it works. It's that game where you have the golf club and you have that little golf ball. Because you might be inclined to think, if you've got a group of people who maybe were not aware of the objective of the game, on the scorecard after everyone hits the ball finally in the hole, you see someone write plus two. And you see someone else write minus one. Now on the surface, you might think, I like plus two better than minus one. Plus two sounds a lot better than minus one. And so you're, you're playing the game and, and, and the scorecard's getting filled up and, and you get to the end and you see that you have plus 18. And you see that one of your partners you're playing with has minus one. And you start to laugh. And you get a good kick out of the fact that you just smoked him. Or so you thought. You see, in the game of golf, it works a little bit differently. It's not the highest score that wins. It's the lowest score. In the game of golf, you want a minus. You don't want a plus. It's important that we know the objective of the game. Knowing the objective at the outset provides you with some information on how then to proceed. You know, as we turn our attention to Acts 27, I'd like to apply a similar principle and ask, what is the objective of this passage? What, what is it that we're to take away from this chapter in particular? Over the course of the next 60 verses, all the way through verse 16, in fact, of chapter 28, most of these 60 verses we're going to cover today. Paul is traveling on board a ship 
He's going to be on three different ships from Caesarea to Rome. He's a prisoner who happens to hold Roman citizenship. He's traveling as a prisoner alongside other unnamed prisoners, verse 1 says. He's headed for Rome after appealing to Caesar's court. Remember, he did that back in chapter 25 before Festus. The objective of the text is to take us along for the journey. We are shifting gears into the final stage of Acts. See, this fourth and final part of Acts that we've been covering this summer. It started in Acts 21 and we're going to end, Lord willing, in Acts 28. But Acts 21, 22, and 23 speak of Paul's imprisonment and Paul, uh, Paul's trials in Jerusalem. In Acts 24, 25, and 26, we see Paul's imprisonment and trials in Caesarea. And now here in these last two chapters of Acts, chapter 27 and 28, we're going to see Paul's imprisonment and journey to Rome. Okay, That's really how the last segment of Acts is laid out. And so we're entering into the last segment of the book of Acts. Now Luke, if you notice, and, and as we see here in chapter 27... Luke doesn't just skip over the journey. But instead he instructs us firsthand through it. If you notice in chapter 27, the we is picked up again. We leads us to believe that Luke himself is on board the ship. Luke himself is with Paul, along with Aristarchus of Thessalonica. So why is he instructing us? In this journey, what's the objective? What's he desired to accomplish by giving us all of these nautical details? It's a ship traveling from Caesarea to Rome. What's the big deal with giving so many details? See, the objective, no doubt, is to get Paul from Caesarea to Rome. And today, by the end of chapter 27, we'll see Paul arriving on the island of Malta. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see him arrive in Rome. But for today, I'd like you to think about the objective of Luke as he writes, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. What objective does he accomplish by chronicling the journey of Paul? Why couldn't he just say that Paul made the journey and then pick it up in Rome? You ever thought about that? There's a lot of details here. He, he, he gives a lot of attention to this journey. See, I believe that Luke's attention to detail is instructive. The journey, the storm, the near-death experience of Paul and his shipmates, it all serves a purpose according to God. See, God is moving his chosen vessel of election, that would be Paul, to Rome. He's already spoken to Paul and promised him that he must also testify in Rome. The journey's objective is not simply about Paul going from point A, Caesarea, to point B, Rome. I believe that Luke records the details to show us something about God. I believe that's why he's showing us the details here. He's going to show us something about God. I believe he wants us to see that God is in the midst of the journey. His presence goes with us even in the midst of the storm. So that is the big objective, the big idea. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. That's the idea I'd like to put forward this morning from the text. And so if storms are a part of the journey, and they are, 
and God is the one orchestrating the storms, how does Paul, in particular in the text, how does Paul navigate the storms when they come? And how are you navigating the storms that come in your life? What is God desiring to teach you through the storm? You know, there are two kinds of storms. There's what I would call a metaphorical storm, which would be similar to what James describes as a trial, right? Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Trials of many kinds. Storms. We could insert storms. Metaphorically speaking, we call that a storm. But there's also a literal storm. And we see that both of these ideas are played out here in the text because verses 1 through 12 present this metaphorical storm. What do I mean? Well, Paul is in a storm even as we open Acts 27. Because you see, he's a prisoner. Paul's a prisoner. But once we get to verse 13 through the remainder of the chapter... We see that there is a literal storm. Paul is not just a prisoner, but Paul is a prisoner on board a ship bound for Rome that encounters a literal storm. Now, it's, it's one thing to encounter a storm in your life. And we all encounter storms of various kinds. We can all feel shackled and, and chained by the trial and wonder when this is all going to happen, when this is all going to go away. But perhaps not many of us have actually encountered a real storm at sea. Not only was Paul a literal prisoner, but in this chapter of Acts, he's going to move through a raging storm, a storm at sea with typhoon, hurricane-like winds. Anyone here ever been through typhoon, hurricane force winds? Anybody? Okay. That's sort of what I thought. Indiana, we don't get those kinds of winds, typically. We get some strong wind gusts. But nothing, I believe, quite like what we're reading about here in the text. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. And I believe Luke, who happens to be traveling with Paul and his companion, Aristarchus, desires to help us see the work of God in the midst of the storm that Paul encounters. And as we'll see, it's a storm that causes a whole slew of problems and puts their very lives in jeopardy. It's a storm that calls for quick decision-making. It's a storm that brings to the surface who the true leaders on board really are. It's a storm that reveals the very presence of the Lord. The storm stretches the faith of Paul, the prisoner. And no doubt causes the other 275 people on board to sit up and pay attention to this prisoner's God. The big idea of the text is to help you see that knowing the Lord gets you through the storms. So knowing that storms are a part of your life journey. Do we all understand that and recognize that? Storms are a part of our life journey. Knowing that to be the case... How then are you called to live? And looking specifically at the life of Paul the prisoner in Acts 27, traveling from Caesarea to an island called Malta, what do we learn about the Lord 
in the midst of the storms that come. I'd like to give you six anchors. I labeled them anchors because it's kind of a boat nautical terminology. I thought it would fit this morning. I'm going to give you six anchors to hold on to when the storms come crashing into your life. Six anchors that will help you through the storm. Six anchors, and this is important, not how-tos, but centered on who. See, those anchors are going to help us identify the Lord, His character, His nature, which ultimately is most helpful for our navigating through the storms. Knowing this God of the Scriptures will get you through the storms. We look at the text. And we see, number one, that the Lord gives grace. The Lord gives grace. In verses 2 and 3, this Paul and company are handed over to Julius, the centurion. And they enter this ship of Adramidium. Adramidium is a port in northwest Asia, up near Troas on the map. That's where this ship is from when they boarded in Caesarea. This ship is probably returning to home port. And so they board this ship. They get on. Julius, the helmsman, the owner, the soldiers, the sailors. But he also has Luke. He has Aristarchus. At Sidon, we see in verse 3. Sidon is just up the coast, about 65, 70 miles north of Caesarea. In fact, as you read 27 of Acts, it's so helpful if you have a map. Because there's so many place names in the Mediterranean. So if you have a map handy, as we look through this, it it might be helpful for you to actually have the visual of a map as you read Acts 27. At Sidon, we're told that Julius, the centurion, treats Paul with kindness... And gives him liberty to go to the friends in Sidon to receive care. We see God's grace poured out on Paul right here at the outset. Remember, Paul is a top-level prisoner. And yet Julius here offers him kindness and liberty at the port of Sidon. And you read the text and you ask the question, since when do... High-level prisoners get, sh- get kindness shown to them. Paul has been navigating through the storm of being a prisoner since Acts 21. Remember that. Prisoners don't deserve kindness. Prisoners don't deserve freedoms of any kind. And yet the text says that kindness and freedom is given to Paul. What is grace? In short, you've probably heard it said, grace is getting something that what? You don't deserve. Something you don't deserve. Paul is given the grace of kindness and freedom, even in the midst of being a prisoner. God's grace is seen in the midst of the storm, and it's a breath of fresh air. It's an encouragement to the soul that God has not left us alone. That he's truly attending to the ways of the righteous. Paul has his ministry friends, Luke and Aristarchus. And at Sidon, he's ministered to by his friends there. They provided for his needs there in Sidon. 
perhaps he spent some time offshore in Sidon with the brethren at Sidon. And they took care of his needs for that short stay. See, knowing the Lord gets you through the storms. And I think one of the things we see here in the text is that we ought not try to navigate through the storms on our own. You were made for relationship. You were made for connection. You were made for fellowship. You were created for doing life together with others. And what a blessing it is to have another brother or a sister or a group of brothers or a group of sisters to go through the storm with you. And what a tragedy it is to go through the storm by yourself. And herein is the joy of belonging to a local assembly. You see, because when the storms of life come, there are other people to help you through the storm. They may not take the storm away, but they're they're going to provide a kindness to you. They're going to strengthen you while you're in the midst of the storm. Those friends, church, are God's grace gifts to you. They're God's grace gifts to you, intended to encourage and strengthen and support you as you journey through the storm. God's grace is sufficient for you along the journey in the midst of the storms. And it's beautiful to see this right up front in Acts chapter 27. What else do we learn from the text about God? I think we see a second anchor here to hold on to in addition to his grace the Lord provides wisdom. The Lord provides wisdom. And, and in particular, we look at verses 5 through 12. The ship travels from Sidon, north of Cyprus, along the coast of Cilicia and, and Pamphylia, before arriving at the port city of Myra in the region of Lycia. Again, looking on the map, you're able to see these places, these regions. And it was here that Julius found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy. What's in Italy? Rome. An Alexandrian ship would be from where? Egypt. Egypt. Now, it's important, just a little, just a touch of a background here. This port at Myra was a very important port. It was a, the place where ships from Egypt would go to get their grain, oftentimes grain, some kind of food. There was a trade, uh, that, trading business that was in place between Rome and Egypt. And Egypt would take their ships from Alexandria to the port of Myra, and that was kind of a, an exchange station. And oftentimes they were going from Myra to Rome. And these Alexandrian ships were very large ships, as we see in the text, large enough to house and board some 276 people. Large ships. The ship that they are currently on leading up to Myra is more of a port sailing vessel, uh, one that would go by the coast. Not a huge ocean liner kind of ship. But the one they're about to get on here, this Alexandrian ship, is a large ship. And so we see here that they get on this ship. And this was a vessel that was accustomed to sailing the open seas. Notice that from Myra, they headed west to Sinaitis. And because of the winds, the text says... They had to go to the south of Crete. So if you see Crete on the map, they had to go south. They went around it to the far eastern point of Crete before landing at the place on the map called 
fair havens. We see that in verse 8. I'd like you to pay attention to the clues that Luke gives in the text in verses 7 and 8. Listen to what he says. He says they, they sailed slowly many days. They arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. The wind not permitting us to proceed. And then passing Salmon with difficulty. You see those words that are in there are giving us clues as to what's going on. And if we look at verse 9, it says, Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. The fast is making reference to what we know as uh, the Feast of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And we need to remember on the calendar, this was um, 59 A.D. Uh, This would have been an early October date we're looking at here. Okay? Early October of 59 A.D. And so they're in verse 9. They had spent some time there in Fair Havens. And now the time for traveling on the Mediterranean was very dangerous. See there, all the sailors knew this in the Mediterranean. That come November 11th through February, the seas were pretty much closed off because of winter. Because it was too dangerous to travel. And so here we are about a month away from the cutoff date of traveling. Early October, and Paul is already seeing and sensing weather conditions that are making it difficult for travel. And we see those words described in verses 7 and 8. It was difficult just to get to Fair Havens. We need to also understand that Paul is not a novice on board a ship, he's a prisoner, but he's not a novice on board a ship. In fact, in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he writes these words in chapter 11, verse 25, in the midst of a whole slew of things that he's gone through. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Paul knew what it was to be shipwrecked. And I found it interesting that right after he says that, he says, a night and a day I have been in the deep. (laughs) Guess what, Paul? You're about to spend more than one day in the deep. Like 14 days. They're going to be floundering here shortly due to this storm. Paul has shown himself to be a godly man filled with the spirit and wisdom. He recognizes the wetter patterns of the Mediterranean. And he knows that the time has come to winter at Fair Havens. He's a veteran traveler around the Mediterranean. Let's not forget that. He's just been on three missionary journeys He's traveled the Mediterranean. He knows the Mediterranean. And yet he's still a prisoner. Look what he does in verse 10. Paul advises them. He says, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. Not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Paul the prisoner advises the centurion, the helmsman, the owner of the ship. Is it any surprise what we read in verse 11? Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Paul is a prisoner. He doesn't have an ounce of authority on board the ship. Let's understand that. Who's going to listen to Paul? He's a prisoner. 
And yet in the midst of the storms of life, the Lord may call us to boldly speak. Listen, we we might not have any position of authority either. We might find ourselves in a similar position of not having authority where we are in the midst of the storm. But when he grants us wisdom to speak for the good of those around us, it's prudent to speak. You see, wisdom is necessary for navigating through the storms. Proverbs 4, let me give you three verses. I just want to give you three verses that I think help us in this arena of wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And all you're getting, get understanding. Question, who gives this wisdom? Proverbs 2, verses 6 and 7 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Here's another question. How then do I get this wisdom from the Lord? James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, here in in the text, godly wisdom is not heeded. Paul puts the wisdom forward, and in verse 11 we see it's not heeded. Take note of that, because a little bit later on in the text, things are going to be different. They're going to listen to what he has to say. We're called to seek his wisdom and show discernment as a follower of the Lord. We're not promised that our words will win the day. But we are promised we will be given words to speak. How many times the Lord says that, right? Luke 12, Luke 21 talks about that. Jesus is talking about there's going to be times when you're in a situation and you may not know what to speak, but the Spirit is going to give you words to speak. The Spirit, by the way, who gives us words to speak is is referred to as a Spirit of wisdom. He's going to provide us with exactly what we need to know, exactly what we need to say in those situations. We're called to operate with wisdom from above. That's James chapter 3. Pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And see, when we operate with this wisdom from above, we can trust that the Lord then is going to take care of the outcomes. Now the text says that the majority, verse 12, the majority advised to set sail. They thought it better to sail on to the harbor of Phoenix. Now, Phoenix on the map is still on Crete, on the island, but it's on the far west side. Phoenix is about 40 miles away from Fair Havens. Doesn't seem like that long of a trip. Time will tell whether this is a good decision. Well, verse 13 says there's a southerly wind that pops up, and they take advantage of the southerly wind. And so they set off, and they stay close to the island, hoping to just navigate 40 miles to the port at Phoenix. But we then get to verse 14. Not long after, a tempestuous tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. And from here to the rest of the chapter, Paul is not only in a metaphorical storm as prisoner, but he's a prisoner now navigating through a literal storm. Things go, in the text, from bad To worse. I mean, look at the text. Follow with me, verse 15. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. 
And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda. Some of your maps may have Clauda. It may also be referred to as Cauda without the L. A little island, Cauda. We secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff is that little boat, sort of like in many times it's intended to be an emergency boat. Right? If you need to get into the boat to, to, to leave, to exit. So this skiff, get this, the wind's blowing. It's banging. Winds are, whoosh, waves are flying everywhere. And you've got this skiff that's probably clanking against the boat. And it says with difficulty, they got it back on board. You better with difficulty. Because when there's a lot of wind blowing, think about trying to pick up a boat from the water, pull it up and get it back on board. That's one of the things that they're doing. This wind's happened. They're, they're, they're taking action in three different ways. They try to get this skiff. They get it on board. They secured it with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they then used the helps or the cables to undergird the ship. Why would they do that? What are they fearful of right now? The ship doing what? Breaking apart. And so they're trying to get these cables to undergird the ship. Whether they went across or whether they went longitudinally, we don't know exactly But they were concerned that the ship, because of this wind, this northeaster, that the ship was going to fall apart. What else? And fearing, verse 17, lest they should run against the Syrtis Sands. The Syrtis Sands were just off the coast, north coast of of Egypt. You see that on the map. And essentially the Syrtis Sands was a a graveyard for, for the ships sailing in the Mediterranean. Especially at this time of year. Because if a wind caught that ship and that wind just kept taking that ship down to the Syrtis Sands, it was sure death for those on board. Because the Syrtis Sands were typically known as a place where there were sandbars and sand reefs and, and places where the, where the ship would run aground, break apart. And so they're some 200 plus miles away from the Syrtis Sands as we speak here in the text. But they are fearful of the wind taking them to that point. Verse 18, because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. Exceedingly tempest-tossed. How many of you ever seen the mechanics in the insides of your washing machine? If you have an old school washing machine, you know what I'm talking about. The thing just kind of... That's sort of like what it was on board this ship, I think. They were severely tempest-tossed. For the light-hearted at the stomach, this was not a place you wanted to be. This boat was getting tossed all over the place. And because of that, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle. Luke's getting involved in this now. This is serious stuff. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. They start tossing stuff. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Think about that. In the midst of the storm, for many days, and we'll come to find out this is about two weeks in length. They could not identify sun or stars. It was all a storm. All up and down. All waves blowing. Wind. Water. And no small tempest beat on us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. All hope that we would ever be saved was finally given up. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storms, friends. And sometimes those storms can blow hard. You might find yourself right now in the midst of a raging storm. 
a northeaster has hit you. It's left you reeling. You might be on the precipice of quitting, throwing in the towel. You might be sitting in a chair today without hope that things are ever going to get better in your situation. Listen, the follower of Jesus is not promised another day, but he is promised life everlasting. The follower of Jesus is not promised that his days are always going to be spent on the mountaintop. They're always going to be carefree, pain-free, without problems. He's not promised that. In fact, the follower of Jesus is instead guaranteed a life of persecution and suffering. What do you do when the tone around you, and this was Paul's case, the tone around him was despair, no hope. I was reminded of Jesus speaking of a storm pressing in at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He likens the man who hears the word and does that word to a wise man. The wise man is one who builds his life upon the rock. And I want you to notice what happens when the storms come upon the house of the wise man. The text says that the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. See, this is why you need to know the Lord. This is why you need to be anchored on the rock of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to a third significant point in the text. The third anchor. The Lord delivers his word. The Lord delivers his word. The Lord gives grace The Lord provides wisdom. The Lord delivers his word. Verses 21 through 26. You see, when the storms are are pounding in the journey, you need to have ears to hear from the Lord. I'm gathering that on board this ship, there were several, if not most, who did not follow Jesus. It's hard to hear from the Lord when you don't have a relationship with him. Paul, after about two weeks of being tossed at sea, he stands in the midst of the men. Remember the last time he spoke? What happened? He was denied and rejected, wasn't he? He stands again and he speaks and he says, men, you should have listened to me. We might paraphrase that as, I told you so. Anybody ever said that? told you so or or thought of saying I told you so hard to read the intentions necessarily here Paul but he, he speaks the word you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and lost and now I urge you to take heart he doesn't dwell there he moves on because he has something much more important to share with him for there will be no loss of life among you but only the ship Remember where everyone else is at at this point. Verse 20 describes that. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. And Paul warned early on back at Fair Havens in verse 10. He warned back there that that he perceives that there's going to be much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also our lives. 
The statement here in verse 21 begs a question. And the men might probably be thinking at this point, how do you know what's going to happen, Paul? Paul says, for there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. Have confidence. Take heart. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. I love the truth of that last statement. As good as the other sounds, hey, we're going to have to go through some more bad stuff here, guys. Paul speaks to the men on board, having heard from the Lord. He's able to speak not only the content of the word given, but notice he's able to testify in the process. Don't miss this. He says, the God to whom I belong. Paul belongs to God. He may be a prisoner in chains on board a ship, but he testifies that he belongs to God. He's a child of God. And he also says, the God whom I serve. Oh, this is good. He's in the midst of the storm. He's standing and, and speaking to these men who are disheartened, who are without hope. And he says, this is the God whom I serve. The one who spoke to me is the God whom I serve. Paul is living for God. You see, Paul's new creation life, which began back in Acts chapter 9 is about serving this God to whom he belongs. He's in chains in the midst of a storm at sea, and yet he can still say that his life is caught up in serving God. Notice, he's not blaming God for the storm that he's in. But he's giving testimony to his God in the storm. And what a difference, friends. What a difference it can make when you know whose you are. You belong to God through Jesus Christ. And whom you serve, you are a servant of the Most High God. That's powerful. What was it then that Paul heard from the Lord that night on board the ship? Well, the first thing wouldn't have been necessarily new news. It wouldn't have been a great surprise to Paul. It went something like this. Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must also testify in Rome before Caesar. Now, Paul had already heard that, hadn't he? Acts 23, verse 11. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. The Lord had already told Paul this, and now in the midst of the storm, the Lord delivers what? His word. He delivers his word. He reminds Paul again, this is what you're going to be doing, Paul. The new news comes right on the heels of that. God has granted to you all, all those who are sailing with you. How many people are on board this ship? 276. Chapter 27, verse 37 tells us that piece of information. Paul heard from the Lord that not only was he going to make it to Rome but that God was granting to him the safety of all 276 people on board this ship. That's the new news that Paul would have delighted in. And no doubt the crew 
at some level would have delighted in that. Paul reiterates what he heard from God. Listen, listen to this. He says then, therefore, after he hears, he he reiterates what God told him. And then he says, therefore, men, take heart, have confidence. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Those three words, those three words are critical for the follower of Jesus navigating through the storm along the journey. And here are the three words. I believe God. I believe God. In fact, I was reminded of Romans 4.21 where Paul is writing of Father Abraham. Remember that? He talks about Abraham. Abraham was being fully convinced that what God had promised or spoken, he was also able to perform. That, friends, is one of the best definitions in all of Scripture of what faith is. The follower of Jesus takes God at his word. He hears what his word says and believes God that he's able to do what he says that he will do. And friends, that's faith in action. And as a follower of Jesus, you are called to walk by faith, aren't you? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that. Walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is walking as God has called you to walk in his word, even though you may not see ahead of time how things might come out in the end. You walk not because you can see the entirety of the path, but you walk because you have light for the path. Oftentimes you don't see the end of the path, but you're given enough light to take that initial step. You see, we're creatures of how, aren't we? You see, when we're, we're told to do something, we oftentimes want to ask, well, how, how are you going to work that one out? How's that going to happen? Give me the details. How? Instead, we need to rely upon the who and trust that knowing the Lord is sufficient to navigate the storms. Faith walking is what God has called you to. Trusting in him that his word is sufficient. Trusting in him that he is able to do what he has promised. The Lord delivers his word and we're called to act in faith. Believing that he will do what he says. Paul is before this disheartened group of men. And he's testifying. I believe God. That it will be just as it was told me. What a breath of fresh air in the midst of the storm. And that's the power of God's word, friends. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storms. God's word is always readily available along the journey. The question is, do you have ears to hear what the Lord has to say? Are you listening for his voice to speak? Are you relying upon the Lord in the storm? Or are you looking for answers elsewhere? Faith walking is best exhibited in the midst of the storm. Think about it. Hearing from the Lord serves as the lamp to your feet, the light to your path. Hearing from the Lord serves as an anchor for the soul. This is a God who speaks. Can I just remind you of that this morning? This is a God who delivers his word, who speaks. He didn't just speak to Paul some 2,000 years ago. He still speaks and desires to speak to his followers today. The problem isn't that the Lord is silent. 
He's delivered his word. The problem oftentimes is that we do not have ears to hear what he has to say. The sailors evidently didn't hear what Paul had to say. As you look at the text, pick it up in verse 27. When the 14th night had come, tossed on the sea, driven up and down, up and down in the Adriatic Sea. You can find that on the map too. About midnight. So it's dark. The sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now Luke doesn't tell us how they sensed that to be true. More than likely, they heard the waves crashing upon the rocks nearby. But we don't have specific detail of how they sensed that to be true. Nevertheless, because they sensed that to be true, they took soundings. They had these ropes and they would put them down into the water. And would measure the, how deep the water is at any certain uh, spot in the sea. And so the first time they drop these ropes down, they find that they are 20 fathoms. A fathom, just so you know, so if, in case you don't know, the fathom is about the length of both arms extended, um, about six feet. So when it says 20 fathoms, if we do the math, those of you who are really good math students, 20 times 6 equals what? 120. So we're looking at about 120 foot deep. A little bit later, they take another sounding. And it comes up and it says, it says now that it's not 20, but 15 fathoms. So what's 15 times 6? 90. Somebody's sharp over here. I like this. 90. On it. And 90. So we go from 120 foot deep to 90 foot deep. And now the sailors are, are panicking. They're panicking. It's midnight. And they don't know what to do. So as they see that they are getting near land, fearing, verse 29, lest we should run aground on the rocks, they drop four anchors from the stern. And then it says they prayed for day to come. Now, we've already said that the good majority of the people on this ship were people who didn't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So who might they be praying to? Got any ideas? Perhaps their particular gods? Maybe some of them were inclined to pray to this God that Paul's been talking about here of late. Maybe. But they were praying for day to come. They couldn't see. And they're fearful. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, this is so, <laughs> this is so interesting to see. When they let down the skiff, remember that skiff was brought on board. Now they're going to lower it back down. Under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, they were trying to fool everybody else on board. Because, you see, these sailors had a plan. And they were going to lower the skiff into the water, jump on the skiff, and try to escape. That was their plan. Paul sees what's going on. And we see that the, the, the variables in the text, it's, it's midnight, which means it's dark. There's a storm going on. They can't see. Their escape, if we just think about this, their escape would probably result in a suicide mission. But the sailors were fearful and tried to make a run for it anyway. And so look at what Paul says in verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers... Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You cannot. Now, Paul has heard from the Lord that all the men will make it safely to shore. Hasn't he? 
And yet here Paul seems to be advocating conditions on God's word. I believe what we see here is a fourth significant principle at work, or a fourth anchor. And that is that the Lord displays his sovereignty. I love this. In these few verses here and also in verse 42. See, God's word is true. He said that he was going to get Paul before Caesar, but he also said that all the men on board the ship were going to make it as well to safety. Does that mean that the men on board can act however they want? And that in acting however they want, they can still be assured of God's blessing? Is there anything to be said about man's responsibility here? See, Paul spoke quickly when he noticed the sailors preparing to jump ship onto the skiff. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Notice the action that's taken immediately by the soldiers. Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Do you get the picture? The skiff's in the, in the, down in the, in the water, and the soldiers come, and, whoosh, and there goes the skiff. It's gone. Now, Paul didn't say cut the ropes of the skiff. That's what the soldiers did. Paul didn't tell them to do that. The centurion and the soldiers, notice, are now taking orders from the prisoner. You see this? Paul the prisoner is now the one they're looking to, taking orders from. They are now listening to what Paul has to say. The man of God is all of a sudden leading in the ship. They trust him. Even a little bit later in verse 42... As the time draws near to abandon ship to the nearby island, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. Remember that? And Roman policy was that if a Roman soldier lost any of the prisoners, what would happen? Their own life would be taken. And so here's the suggestion. The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners. The ship is about to break up. Before it breaks up entirely and everybody scatters, the prisoners are the ones looked at the ones that need to be killed. But see, God had already spoken that all the men on board would be granted life, didn't he? Who steps in to correct things at this point? Julius. Julius the centurion. It says in verse 43, the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them, the soldiers, from their purpose. You see, God has told us in his word what he will do. He's also called us to be responsible to obey his commandments, to follow and not to forsake his word. Paul and Julius, they both take responsibility in the text to act. One speaks regarding the sailors about to escape the ship, and the other denies the killing of the prisoners. Says this isn't going to happen. Both are acting responsibly in light of God's revealed word, and as they act rightly, they are being used by the Lord in his sovereignty to secure safety for Paul and the other 275 people on board. You see, knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. I believe there's a fifth anchor here in the text that's important for us. And that is that the Lord supplies his strength. The Lord supplies his strength in verses 33 through 38. It's, it's been about two weeks since the people have eaten any food due to the storm at sea. And Paul, in the midst of a worn out, lifeless bunch... As day is about to break, he begs the people to eat. He says, I urge you to take nourishment. I urge you to take nourishment. Verse 34, for this is for your survival. Since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. He's reminding them once again of what God said. 
the Lord strengthens Paul for the task of calling the people on board to eat. See, the promise from the Lord is still intact. But Paul is empowered by God to voice what's needed for the remainder of the journey in the storm. Paul provides an example. Notice, he takes the bread. He breaks it. And don't miss this part. He gives thanks to God in the presence of them all. Paul is being a witness in the storm. I think there's a lot we can learn right here. You see, I'm inclined to think that for many of us, when we find ourselves in a storm, we are so consumed by the storm. We're so consumed by what's gone wrong that we fail to remember that our best witness is in the midst of the storm. People are watching you as you go through and navigate your storm. And Paul here has been given power, strength by God, to stand. Because don't think for a moment that Paul wasn't weary. That Paul was just, oh, well, he was as strong as can be. Paul had also gone through the storm, the, storm, the same storm as everyone else on board. But God has empowered Paul to stand and encourage these people. The storm may still be raging, but the strength of the Lord infuses, look, look, it infuses hope, it infuses encouragement for the remainder of the journey. So knowing the Lord gets you through the storms. Now there's one last thing here in the text I think it's important for us to see in these last few verses. And that is that the Lord exhibits his faithfulness. The Lord exhibits his faithfulness. Day approaches, verse 39, they see a bay and a beach. And they cut loose the anchors. They just cut them loose. They don't even worry about them, let them drop into the sea. Why? Because they know this ship isn't going to be lasting too much longer. (laughs) They cut them loose. They untie the the rudder ropes. They hoist the mainsail to the wind. And they're aimed right at the shore. The goal is to get to the shore. Well, they don't quite make it to the land. And by the way, Paul told them that according to the word of the Lord, their ship was going to uh, run aground. Paul told them that. That's exactly what the Lord said. Notice, though, that even though the ship starts to break up and the soldiers get this idea of killing the prisoners, the Lord's faithfulness is evident. And I believe it's clearly seen in the last verse of the chapter, verse 44. It says, the last sentence, in fact, And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. How many of them escaped safely? All of them. And so it was that all of them escaped safely to land. So what's the final message of this chapter? The Lord is faithful to keep his word. The Lord is faithful to keep his word. He said all would make it safely to shore. And it really happened. It really did happen. 276 people made it safely to shore in the midst of a typhoon-like, hurricane-like storm at sea. It's incredible to think about how it happened. But it's a reminder that knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. Truly, it was one man in particular who knew the Lord that seemed to save the crew here. You know, I was reminded of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord was actually going to save those cities. Why? On what what, what basis? If there were some righteous people there. He was, on behalf of the righteous people, he was going to save the city. 
Boy, I was thinking about that idea, and I thought, well, Paul's on this boat. Yeah, he's on the boat with Luke and Aristarchus, but we're getting this account that the Lord, through Paul, is, is literally saved the ship. Think about it. A godly man. We talked about this last week, Psalm 1. A godly man. One who knows the Lord. He's heard from the Lord. And he's saved, literally. These people around him. The text is much more, I believe, than a how-to to navigate the storms of life. The objective of Luke's account in Acts 27 is to shine light on the mighty God we serve. And let me just review who this mighty God is in Acts 27. God's grace is sufficient in the storm. God's wisdom is a necessity for the storm. God's word is a compass in the storm. God's sovereignty is a beacon in the storm. It's, it's, it's an overriding, we can see it. We know he's there. We can trust he's there. God's strength empowers us to keep going through the storm. And God's faithfulness assures us and comforts us through the storm. See, knowing the Lord gets you through the storm, friends. And some of you might be questioning. You might have some thoughts. You might be inclined to ask at this point, does knowing the Lord mean that you'll always make it through the storm unharmed? No, it doesn't mean that. Knowing the Lord does not guarantee that you'll always be safe from harm's way. It doesn't mean that you'll always be healthy or wealthy. But here's what it does mean. Knowing the Lord brings with it an assurance that no one or no circumstance can take away. There is truly no condemnation toward those in Christ Jesus. Nothing, says Paul in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, knowing the Lord grants you security for the storms that do come. And even if the storm wins, listen to this, this is important. Even if the storm wins and you die, knowing the Lord reaps victory in the end. See, that's how Paul could say in, in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Death for the follower of Jesus is a glorious entry into the heavenly home where you will be with Jesus and finally get to see him as he is. Death apart from knowing the Lord is a lifetime of everlasting punishment spent apart from the Lord in a place the Bible calls hell. And friends, this is why knowing the Lord is of greater importance than simply a how-to on navigating the storms of life. If all you know is how to navigate the storms and you never identify the who, you never identify the one who alone can get you through the storms, the one who secures you in the midst of the storms and provides you that blessed assurance of life on the other side of the storm, whether in life or in death, we're missing the key person. It's the who, not the how to. See, knowing the Lord gets you through the storms, but the text seems to indicate that a relationship with the Lord impacts others toward the Lord as well. Knowing the Lord is not to be kept to yourself. It's meant to be lived out by faith so that others might see your life and praise the Father in heaven. 
The objective is not simply to get you through the storm. And sometimes that's about all we get to. Oh, Lord, help me through the storm. But I believe the objective, big picture, is not simply to get you through the storm. Hopefully, as you navigate the storms that come your way, your life manifests God's grace, God's wisdom, God's word. It's a picture of his sovereignty at work as you take responsibility for what you know to be true in his word. God's strength, God's faithfulness. You see, knowing the Lord, we need to understand this at the end. Knowing the Lord doesn't just get you through the storm. Knowing the Lord gets all men and women through the storm. All of them. Storms are a part of the journey. And for the sake of Christ, live as though you belong to the Lord. That's what Paul says. This God whom I belong to, live as though you belong to him. And for the sake of Christ, live a surrendered life of service to the one that you profess. That all might see and so that all might come to know this Lord who gets even them out of the storm. That's a powerful witness and a powerful testimony, friends. Knowing the Lord gets you through the storm. Knowing the Lord gets all men and women through the storm. And in light of that, we need to be mindful of our witness and our testimony. And I'll end where we have been on many, many occasions through this study in the book of Acts. I'll point you back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the big idea, the big theme of the whole book. And Jesus says that you are to wait in Jerusalem for the power from on high. And we know that power from on high to be the person of the Holy Spirit. And when you receive that power from on high, Jesus says, you are to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very end of the earth. Friends, that's what we're called to be. And we're called to be a witness to Jesus even in the midst of the storms that come. Let's pray. I'm reminded of the song, Lord, how important it is to know you. There truly is no greater thing. I thank you, Father, that you lead us, that you take us by the hand. And as the hymn writer says, as he ponders you leading, that it is a blessed thought. It's a blessed thought to know that you are leading us. Father, I pray that as we journey in our lives in these days ahead none of which are guaranteed Father we would be intent on looking to your word to see who you are Father I pray that today we would be reminded of how important it is to know who you are as we know more about you Lord Father we we can leave those outcomes to you because we know you are God who is a gracious God. We're saved by that grace through faith, not of our own works, lest any of us should boast, but your grace that saved us. Your wisdom is far beyond ours. You are the one who gives wisdom. From your mouth comes wisdom. You store up wisdom for the upright. And you've called us, Lord, to ask of you for this wisdom And you said that you will grant to us your wisdom. 
And Father, we thank you for your word. You are a God who delivers your word. For that, we're grateful. Father, we thank you that we can look to you and we see all throughout this chapter your character, your nature. Because of who you are, this sovereign God, we see that all things, as the Bible says, truly do work together for good for those who love you. We see, Lord, that you are a, a God who strengthens his people. Even in the midst of a, of a chaotic two-week period, you empowered Paul to stand before this worn-out group and, and to encourage them, to breathe life into them in the midst of the storm. And I pray that even today, Lord, there would be some here who would take away from the message Lord, you may be calling them to do just that. That they know of someone or a group of people who are in the midst of a, a difficult time. They're worn out. They're exhausted. And maybe today, Lord, you're using them to encourage them to speak and stand and speak a word of comfort and encouragement. And Father, I thank you that we serve a God who is faithful. You are faithful to the end. Even when we are unfaithful, your word says that you remain faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, I pray that we would be a people who, like Paul, simply carry around with us those three words. I believe God. And as we carry those words around, may we then diligently seek to obey your commandments. To walk by faith and to trust wholeheartedly in this God whom we serve. Because truly, knowing you gets us through the storms. And we thank you for that good news. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.